0: This is Broadcast Mysteries, a podcast. A story about a case of the unexplained, the uncanny, and the unsolved. I'm Carolee grewing Go then. There are other worlds than these. If these words sound familiar, it's because they should. Maybe you remember them in our first episode, where Martin Molson told us that these were words spoken by Cole Atkins only days before his disappearance. Maybe you know the words, but can't really place them. Their origins stuck on the tip of your brain, just slightly out of reach. Or maybe they sound familiar, because like Cole Atkins, you too are a fan of Stephen King. Cole's words are from a novel written by Stephen King. The book in question was the first book in the Dark Tower series, a series I'd heard of but sadly hadn't read, which is why initially I didn't think anything of the quote beside it sounding odd and even a little ominous. It should be no surprise that Cole is a fan of King's work. I mean, who isn't? Practically everyone in Western Civilization has read or seen or heard of a Stephen King story. I remember my first contact with King's tales of the fantastic and the terrifying. I was a young girl, I'd say about 7 or 8 years old, and I had a babysitter, a teenage girl who lived down the road named Penny. Penny was very alternative, maybe that's the right word, but I thought she was pretty much the coolest person ever, with her blue streaks and her fiery ginger hair. She was everything 8 year old me wanted to be as a grown up, even though Penny was maybe 15 and hardly considered a grown up by any standards. One late Saturday night, Penny decided we were going to watch a movie. With my parents out of town for the night, Penny basically had free reign as to what show my impressionable wide-eyed seven-year-old self would watch. It was this dark and stormy Saturday night, a night I wouldn't soon forget, that Penny showed me a little film called Pet Cemetery*. But for now, let's get back to Cole Atkins and The Dark Tower. The Dark Tower tells the story of Roland, the gunslinger a cowboy of sorts that lives in a post-apocalyptic world that shows similarities to Earth but is clearly a place of its own. He is in search of a person called the Man in Black, who is a mysterious figure and Roland's enemy. On his quest, Roland meets a young boy named Jake, a young boy who dies in what seems to be our world and ends up in Roland's world because of it. He joins Roland on his travels for part of the book. In the end, it comes to Roland choosing between continuing his search for the Man in Black or letting Jake die. He chooses, rather selfishly I might add, to choose the man in black, sacrificing Jake in the process. But it is Jake who convinces him. Jake's last words? Go then, there are other worlds than these. In the context of the book, it's implied that Jake is willing to die for Roland's cause because deep down, he knows it's not the end. That he will travel to another world, another place, maybe another time. Where, he isn't sure, but he knows this isn't the end. It's both sad and uplifting simultaneously. It's a similar idea to what a lot of religions follow, the idea that there is a place where we go when we die. The idea of religion, faith, or Ka, as a guiding force is comforting. Sure, it wasn't something that Cole Atkins believed in, at least not according to his wife, Carrie Atkins, or his best friend, Jamie Lloyd. It's no question that Cole was a fan of the Dark Tower series, Though he never got to finish it, and it's no question that Cole, like Roland of Gilead, was a man who had big ideas. The question is, what does all this have to do with the disappearance of Cole Atkins? In order to figure out how Stephen King fits in with all this, I talked to two people, one of which is Sylvester Woods, Cole's coal worker, where we will hear part three of our conversation, The other, Cole's Cole's friend and lifelong Stephen King fan himself, Jamie Lloyd. It had been a while since I talked to Jamie, and it was good to catch up. Here's our conversation. So you've read the books, right? Oh, yeah. And this was something that you and Cole shared?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say I was the bigger King fan overall, but I doubt you could find a bigger fan of the Dark Tower books than Cole. I mean, he was obsessed. I mean, he even named his daughter after the books.
0: Oh, really? Roxy?
1: Well, her middle name was Gabrielle, who's Roland's mother in the Dark Tower series. Though I'm not sure that Carrie knows that.
0: Okay. So what was it about these books that had Cole so...
1: Obsessed? Yes. Hmm. Well, I mean, they're really good books. It's a shame Cole never had a chance to finish them. Have you? Oh, yeah. I love them. Clearly. Well, you see, if you think about it, they combine a fantasy with a sort of Clint Eastwood type of western with a bit of, I don't know, maybe science fiction. I think a lot of philosophical ideas embedded in the books really grabbed hold of Cole and never really let him go.
0: Hmm. What do you mean? like What philosophical ideas?
1: Well, there's a few things. There's the idea of honor, which is something that Cole romanticized especially when he was a little kid. there's the idea of all things are connected, which is something that Cole believed. Not like on a religious level by any means. I mean, he wasn't a guy that believed in that sort of thing, but on a scientific level, or at least that's what he said. I mean, he believed that at the most base, molecular level, all beings, all cells, every atom in the universe was connected. But he also believed in the idea of the other world, Again, not in a religious way, but scientifically.
0: And by other worlds, you mean?
1: Oh, I mean other dimensions.
0: Other dimensions. Crazy, huh? I used to think that as well. I used to think that the idea of things happening around us or even an afterlife was nothing more than wishful thinking. Used to. But now, I'm not so sure. Let me get one thing straight, I realize what I'm about to say is, well, a bit crazy, a bit loony, but at the same time, this entire case has been crazy. From the second Cole Atkins disappeared, the events surrounding the case, the people, revolver, the circumstances, have all been unorthodox. But isn't that what makes cases like Cole's interesting? The idea that crazy, the impossible, is in fact possible? It's a mindset I adopted early on in this case, and not one I'm willing to get rid of. Not yet, anyway. For now, allow me to indulge. Allow me to dip into the crazy, into the unreal. Allow me to look at this case, pardon my pun, from an entire new dimension. The idea of alternate dimensions or parallel universes or alternate realities has been proposed both scientifically and in literature for a very long time. Recently, I'm talking the last 30 years, which does feel recent in regards to science and ideas and technology, there's been a fairly radical shift in what is deemed science and science fiction. The idea of other worlds or other timelines or realities is actually an accepted, while not proven, idea for scientific theorists. 30 years ago, though, Compared to today, the idea was much more niche and much less popular. Though the idea of something being niche or popular never stopped Cole Atkins. When it came to the idea of other dimensions, Cole always approached that topic with an open mind. I talked to Jamie about this and he verified the idea. I talked to Sylvester Woods, in part of the interview you will not hear, who also said that it was a fascination of Cole's, and I talked to a few of Cole's other friends and former classmates, one of which, who while they did not wish to partake in the podcast by lending their voice, decided to help in a different variety. Harry Adajare was an avid film aficionado who went to school with Cole. They were friends, not that close, and Harry admits that they fell out of touch soon after graduation. But they spent a fair amount of time together in college, and during most of that time, Harry had a video camera in his hands. He took it upon himself to document, whether it be at a friendly gathering, or a study session, or just moseying about campus, pretty much his and others' entire college experience. Remember this was in the late 80s, and video cameras were not all that common, but Harry, who still does video, was an early adopter. Because of this, there's actually a fair bit of camera footage of Cole when in college, I talked to Harry about Cole, about what he was like back then, about the case, which he wasn't that familiar with, and even about Revolver, which he had heard of. I brought up a few of the ideas I had hypothesized on regarding what might have happened to Cole, and that's when Harry, who had watched many of the tapes in leading up to our talk, told me that one particular tape was interesting. Interesting enough that I should watch. So for the second time in the last few months, I found myself watching a tape of Cole Atkins. A man who I suspected I would never get to see in the flesh. A man who I had grown to know quite well, and frankly, quite attached to. Here's what I saw. The tape begins at a party. Not your typical Hollywood party with wall-to-wall people all bumping and grinding and drinking to loud music, but more of a small gathering of friends. The footage moves through the party, passing by a half a dozen guests or so before getting to the kitchen where a young Cole Atkins sits around a table with a few friends. One of which is a very young and very gorgeous Carrie Carpenter. Cole is in mid-conversation and he has clearly had a few drinks. I'm going to play you the audio of the tape now. Listen carefully. I don't know. Just forget all, just forget all that religious stuff. No, no, I'm serious. Just hear me out. It's not like this is Carolyn,
2: come on. I'm trying to be honest. It's it's practically everywhere in okay. the Look. There are other universes, other worlds out there, we just can't see them, not yet, anyway.
0: I know it's a little bit crazy, but the first time I heard this, I couldn't help but think about Revolver and whatever it was they were up to, something that I always felt was crucial to this case. What Cole says on here on this tape certainly was interesting. And okay, I get that this is entirely out of context and what he's saying doesn't really tell us all that much, and well, on the surface, it doesn't really have much to do with anything regarding the case of Cole Atkins, right? Well, stay with me here for a bit. I want to take you now to the last part of my talk with Sylvester Woods. If you remember from last episode, we ended with Sylvester stating that he destroyed the footage acting on Cole Atkins' request. I wanted to find out why, so I pressed. At that point in time, I still felt that he was either lying or hiding something from me. And I was partially right. Here it is. What do you mean he told you to?
2: I mean, he asked me to do something for him. He asked me not to ask why.
0: You know, I'd appreciate if you stopped talking in code and started telling me actual things. I get that you have a lot at stake here, I get that. But I didn't come all this way to unscramble a series of cryptic and frankly useless messages. Now, do you want to help or not?
2: Okay. I'll make you a deal. You ask questions, and I'll respond as directly as I can. You promise?
0: No more lies or vague answers? Yes. Did you kill Cole Atkins? No. Do you know who did? No. What were you and Cole working on at Revolver?
2: Like I said, we were working on something that was unprecedented. Something that could change the world. I'm not sure where to begin. I guess it started with Revolver.
0: The following is an edited version of what Sylvester Woods had to say. Mostly because of time. He talked for well over an hour, and also just to help me organize my thoughts and Sil's ideas into something that is easier to understand. So here goes. Cole and Sylvester were indeed tasked to work on a new engine design based on nuclear power. They worked on that for the first four years that they were employed under Revolver. Still admits that neither he nor Cole understood exactly why the Truffaut family was interested in something like this. He suspects that it was Ronnie Truffaut's attempt to put a mark on the world that wasn't handed to him by his crime boss sister Jasper, something that he had developed in something legal or mostly legal at least. He also admits that at least part of Revolver's operations were used as a front for some kind of illegal activity that was run through the company. But what exactly that was? he was never sure, nor did he ask. Sylvester, as well as Cole, had very little interest in anything beyond what happened in their laboratory. Sylvester is convinced that they were both hired, at least partially, due to their ability to focus on the task at hand. They weren't the type to get nosy. This refutes the theory presented to us by Martin Molson, who we heard from way back in our first episode. Martin's theory was that Cole had figured something out, Something that Ronnie and whoever else was involved in the secret dealings at Revolver didn't want him to know. But Sylvester, he didn't think that this was the case at all. Himself and Cole had discussed what they had thought was going on at Revolver many times, and they had both come up to the same conclusion. Whatever it was, was far less interesting and far less important than what they were working on. But what were they working on, really? Like I said, Cole and Sylvester started with nuclear-based engines, but shortly into their development, they hit a wall. It was a safety issue that hung them up, one that most nuclear reactors face as well, one that we're all familiar with, and one that we're all frankly a little terrified of. A meltdown. Even though the amount of nuclear material they used was quite small, the consequences of an accident, the aftermath of such a thing, would cause a release in a fair amount of radiation, an amount that was lethal for anyone involved in the accident and even a few people in close proximity. Obviously not something you can put on the market, right? But that idea didn't stop either of the men. For them, it was only another hurdle. These men were lifelong problem solvers. It's practically in their blood. And problem solving is exactly what they did. I mentioned in a previous episode that Sylvester Woods had invented a way to allow fax machines to break down information faster and without a loss in information, which in fax machine terms means the images or files you are transferring are perfect copies of the original. It was that invention that led Cole and Sylvester towards their answer. Sylvester had the idea. If they can break down the nuclear reaction or a basic piece of information, maybe they could transfer it in the same way they transfer a file through a fax. So, if the engine began a meltdown, it could transfer the chemicals to a cooled portion to stop it. And while this innovation could drastically alter the future of the transport and automotive industry, it was Cole who saw the bigger picture. While they could never fully map the reaction in a way that they could break it down and copy it, Cole thought that there was something that was already mapped, that using these same principles could also be transferred using this method. That was the human genome. While the human genome would not be fully mapped out until 2003, Cole had an idea that this theory was still perfectly valid. So they went to work on that instead, keeping their research secret from Ronnie and his people along the way. For those of you who are not aware how a fax machine works, for many of you who are born after the year 1995, you may not even know what a fax machine is. It was a means of communication, file sharing, that people used before the widespread use of email. How it works is the fax machine copies information, breaks it down into its smallest form, then rebuilds it on the other side of the transmission. Let that sink in for a moment. I want to take you now to a portion of Sylvester's interview where he discusses their experiments openly. Here it is. How did you go about doing this?
2: We never quite got the breakthrough Cole and I wanted with the nuclear engineering. We did find one thing that was unexpected. Go on. Through the process of trying to stabilize the nuclear fission, in hopes to deter any kind of meltdown or explosion in the event of an accident, we stumbled upon something much bigger. We discovered a way to break down particles to the subatomic level. That was step one. We knew we had something big, even then. But how to use it? It was Cole's idea. An idea I wish I had thought of honestly. It was so simple. It was an idea that already existed. An idea that I had plenty of experience with. Only Cole put a new spin on it. We already did have a process that broke down parts to their smallest level. It's called a fax machine. That was step two. Step three was figuring out a way to harness these broken down subatomic particles. Once we knew how to do that, it was just a matter of building a machine. Well, two machines, really.
0: Mm, I'm a little lost. So what exactly did you do with this information?
2: We knew the subatomic particles could be transferred, theoretically, via quantum teleportation. It was a crazy theory, with not a lot of hard science to back it up, but one that Cole had been a fan of. And frankly, no one has done work as extensive as we have on this idea. Not to my knowledge, anyway. No one has pushed boundaries quite like this. To our surprise, it actually worked.
0: Are you saying what I think you're saying? Yes. You're saying you guys invented teleportation? Yes. Teleportation. Um, okay. Now, the first time I heard this, I thought Sylvester Woods had lost it. But as I listened to him explain it, And later verified the science with a friend of mine, I slowly came around. It's interesting to listen to someone tell you a story that you believe to be untrue, and you watch as they tell you, you see their face, their eyes, and the idea of truth and lies become muddled. I believe that Sylvester believed that he and Cole Atkins had discovered teleportation, and slowly I began to believe it myself. I asked Sylvester what he thought happened, and I finally got an answer from him. Something I've been waiting for for nearly a year. Here it is, and again, this is the Cliffs Notes. They had created a way to move an object from one space to another using two machines as ports. They had successfully transported small, simple objects, like grains of sand, and slowly tried bigger and more complex objects. A cup of water, a computer, eventually getting to organic matter, teleporting an apple. From there, they moved to animal testing, and really, everything worked out brilliantly. There seemed to be no visible side effect of the process. The next step was... well, you guessed it. It was Cole who suggested it first. They needed to see if it worked the way they wanted. Without the ability to transport humans, what they had was a glorified barge. Cole volunteered despite Sylvester's protests. The first few trials were a success, but Sylvester felt that Cole was hiding something from him. He could see that something had changed in Cole, that something wasn't right. So he pressed him, and pressed him, and pressed him until Cole told him. Sylvester, unwilling to go through the machine himself, his reason, and his own words were, our machine broke down a person to the smallest level, effectively killing them and rebuilding a new version of them on the other side. That wasn't something I was entirely interested in, and frankly, I was okay with Cole taking the risk. Because he had never experienced the transfer, he could only rely on Cole's words to describe the experience. He never did get the chance. Shortly after Cole vanished, the machines did as well, and were never seen again. Here's what Sylvester said Cole described to him regarding his experiences going through the teleportation process. Sylvester had written this down, word for word, in his daily notebook. Here it is. Despite being an instant process, internally, it feels much longer, like minutes, sometimes several. You visit a world not dissimilar to that in which you experience in a dream. A world not so different than our own. It's a world that we've all dreamed of visiting. I saw him. I saw Bobby. I saw my son. Go then. There are other worlds than these. Next time on the season finale of Broadcast Mysteries. Broadcast Mysteries is produced by Joshua Roach. Music by Michael Feen. Logo and graphics designed by Alex Daranowski and hosted by me, Carolee Gerwing. If you'd like to support us, follow us on Twitter at BC Mysteries, on Facebook and Instagram at Broadcast Mysteries, or you can email us at broadcastmysteries at gmail.com. The final episode of Broadcast Mysteries will be available in one week. Go to broadcastmysteries.com for details.